Hello and welcome once again to the Cognitive Bias Podcast. I'm your host, David Dylan Thomas, and uh, today we are going to talk about online advertising. So, uh, like I've been saying, we're kind of coming to the close here, and uh, this is actually going to be our next to last episode. Um, And uh, I kind of figured it would be good to have that be an episode that takes one kind of case study and looks at all the different ways that bias plays out. Um, in that case study, it's sort of a demonstration of like putting all the pieces together and seeing how kind of disastrous that can be. So, um, I was reading this article about online advertising and like, as I was reading it and my jaw kind of dropped and I just, I just sort of saw bias after bias after bias kind of play out in this story. Um, so this is a story from the correspondent by Jesse Frederick and Maritis Martin. M-A-R-T-I-G-N. Um, and uh, the title is The New Dot-Com Bubble is Here. It's called Online Advertising. And I got this uh, via Baratunde Thurston, who's an amazing uh, individual. Um, subscribe to his uh, all of the things that he has. He has a great newsletter that I found this in. and He's just an awesome person. But um, uh, And you might need to get a subscription. I'll post a link. I think my link came by a like link he gifted his subscribers. But in any case, um, this is where it comes from. And... Uh, it really just kind of breaks down the kind of myths we have about online advertising. So I'll kind of give you kind of the high level and really what I want to do is just sort of highlight the biases I kind of see at work in here. So the basic idea is that fundamentally we don't know if ads are effective. Um, and this has kind of always been true. If you think about print ads and television ads, you know, there was no causality. There was no proof that because this person saw this ad, they bought this thing, right? Um, and so it made intuitive sense that it was going to be a little bit of, you know, magic, I think is the word that they use. So once you get to the internet, though, there seems to be this promise of, oh, we can actually measure things now. We can measure clicks, right? And so everything's solved. And not only that, we can target advertising. We can know things about the person who's looking at the page and serve them ads based on what we know about them. So it suddenly seems very scientific, uh, but as we'll see, that kind of breaks down quickly. Um, so... The article, they did this like extensive research, talked to people from Yahoo, Google, Microsoft, eBay, Facebook, Netflix, Pandora, and Amazon, like lots of different places that are really investing heavily and that advertisers invest heavily in. Um, and the first kind of bias you ran into is basically all of season two. Season two of this podcast was really about probability and how bad we are at thinking about probability. And and like I said at the time, like probability is a lot harder than it seems. I remember in college taking probability, thinking it would be very easy and intuitive and nothing could be further from the truth. I was at best a C plus student, um, probably worse. So, um, so it's hard things that seem intuitive aren't, you know, as obvious. And so, one of the things that people ran into when they first started trying to tout the efficacy of online advertising is something called selection effects. And the way they talk about it in the article is pretty effective. They talk about how, imagine that you have three people who are going out and um, uh, selling coupons or giving out coupons for, um, uh, for a pizza joint, right? And one of them is giving out way more coupons, right? Uh, and bringing in a lot more business, right? And so you think this person must be a marketing genius and you pull them aside and say, hey, what's your secret? Like, what did you do? He said, well, I just stood in the pizza line, right? He was giving coupons out to people who were going to buy pizza anyway. There's no evidence that if he hadn't been there, they wouldn't have gone ahead and got the pizza. Selection effects are basically saying, look, your online ads are going out there um, to people and it's not entirely clear that they wouldn't have clicked on your organic, you know, link 
anyway, that they wouldn't have found you anyway. They're searching for this thing. You sell this thing. There's no proof that the ad is actually the thing that made them buy it. They were probably already on their way to the store, so to speak. So once you control for selection effects, right, then you can kind of get a better idea of whether or not it's the advertising that's doing it. Um, and for a long time, so they talked to this one math, uh, or economist who for a long time had trouble getting buy into that idea because no one kind of wanted to be proved wrong, which is a whole other bias we'll get to later. Um, but um, he kind of got this opportunity because um, eBay was trying to negotiate lower prices with, um, I think it was Bing. And um, so for a little while, they weren't going to sell any uh, ads for the keyword eBay, right? So that's the experiment is kind of like built in, right? So they can look and see, okay, when there are no longer ads for eBay, do people still like click on, you know, the, try to get to eBay, like click on the organic link for eBay. Um, and as it turns out, <laughs> They did, right? So the um, having the, the um, and you, you should really look at the articles, have a great graph that kind of shows like the zero effect of things. Like the second they stop the ads, the organic ads clicks go up and the, you know, ad, the actual ad clicks, you know, obviously go down, but it's almost perfectly compensated. And um, something like for every dollar eBay spent on search, they lost 63 cents. So every, every dollar they spent on search advertising, they lost roughly 63 cents. Um, this is economist uh, Steve Toletis uh, calculating this stuff. Um, so they thought, oh, brand keyword advertising is uh, bringing in $245 million, right, for, for, for our spend. Um, but when you controlled for selection effects, it was actually losing them like $20 million. Um, and this was huge, right? People, people did not see this coming because, again, they weren't thinking about it that way. We also talk a little bit about um, the Texas sharpshooter effect. I think that might have been the end of season two, um, which is, again, one of those like, oh, I saw somebody uh, and there's a target and there's all these bullet holes in the target. This person must be an amazing sharpshooter when, in fact, no, he just shot a bunch of holes in the wall and drew circles around them. Like, this is almost that you know, degree of, you know, um, not testing your hypothesis. This, you know, um, Tadellis is like, say, hey, let's look at what happens when the ads aren't there. That is, in fact, the scientific method. That is, we kind of talked about this last week with ways to avoid bias. That is saying, hey, if we're wrong about the effect of online advertising, what else would be true? Well, uh, if we're wrong, then um, not having the ads there would still bring in the same number of clicks or approximately that. So let's test that, right? That's, that, that is the, hey, if I'm wrong, this might be true. Then let's test and see if that's true. And in this case, it was, right? Um, so clicks, and, and this isn't just like, you know, online ads, you know, um, on search engines, but like clicks and sales and downloads after ad views, they're all kind of misleading benchmarks because they're not accounting for selection effects. You keep having to ask yourself, would people have done the same thing if they didn't see the ad? That's the question you need to answer. Um, and algorithms actually make this worse, right? They increase the selection effect. And think about it. You have brand X buys an ad on platform Y, the algorithm will seek out likely brand X users. Who is most likely to click on brand X? Brand X customers, therefore you're generating clicks, but not additional clicks, right? Not clicks that you would not have gotten had the ad been there, right? Um, so that's one bias that's coming into play there. You've got selection effect neglect, you've got you know um, confirmation bias 
starting to, to work in, on that. And then you also have just this general prejudice we have around data. Like we assume that just as soon as we use the word data, we're safe, right? Um, because more information can only be better, right? We're getting so much information, how could we get wrong? Um, and uh, we talked about this. There's this thing called information bias. And it is this notion that the more information you have, the better decisions you'll make which sounds intuitive, but is actually not always true. And there's all sorts of, you can go back to that episode, but there's all sorts of cases where, you know, you might have doctors who are given more information and actually make worse, you know, decisions than if they'd had less. Because it's not about having lots of information, it's about having the right information and asking the right questions. Um, so part of what was really upsetting about this article is the idea that we are, you know, it's bad enough that we have this Faustian bargain with social media um, and the internet in general, where we are willing to give up a lot of our privacy, a lot of our personal data in order for convenience, in order to, you know, be given more targeted ads or in order for, you know, Alexa to know us and just make everything easy and seamless. And the, the capitalist kind of, you know, dream behind that is, uh, yes, but it's a good business business model, right? Because if I have that data, I can sell it to advertisers, right? So there's this valuable exchange. You are the product, and hey, if you agree to it, great, right? Terms of service, we're all good here. Even if it's a little sketchy and creepy, there's an actual business model at work that's, you know, making money in this logical, rational way. Except <laughs> we have no evidence that it's not just snake oil, right? It, it, it's looking very much like we've been giving away our personal data for nothing, for a pipe dream, for a bubble. I mean, that, they, they use that word very accurately. A bubble is when you have an economic, um, a whole lot, lot of money getting invested in a thing that uh, has no actual value, and eventually people figure it out. So when they kind of crunched the numbers, they saw um, on a bunch of uh, Facebook experiments, actually, that the selection effect was 10 to 50 times more powerful than advertising. So they did like 15 or so Facebook experiments. And they would say, okay, we predict that it'll take 1,490 views before anybody buys anything, right? But then it turns out to be more like one in 14,000 people, right, actually bought something because of an ad. Um, so it's an outsized effect. And uh, this researcher who's worked with like Yahoo, Google, and Netflix, this guy Randall Lewis and then the economist Justin Rao write this paper about the whole thing called On the Near Impossibility of Measuring the Returns to Advertising. Uh, and it's kind of funny, too. I'm going to link to the paper, and you'll notice that when it finally got published, they changed the name to The Unfavorable Economics of Measuring the Returns to Advertising. But you know what they were really talking about. Um, so uh, they also talk a little bit in the article about how Part of the problem is you don't know how many things you need to measure, how much you need to measure before you see the effect of a thing. So something like cystic fibrosis, to find out how many people like in the country have it, you have to like talk to a million people before you start to get a sense of what the baseline is. Whereas if it's like the flu, you, know, you can talk to 10,000 people before you figure out what kind of the baseline is for that. Um, and again, and again it's something we don't think about when we think about probability. And for online advertising, you need to talk to even more because they point out like actually people clicking on ads is even rarer than cystic fibrosis, right? So it's really this improbable event that you have to do a lot of measuring before you can really start to, to get a feel for. Um, all of it kind of boiling down to there's no rational way to advertise. We just don't have the data, right, to say if we do this, we're going to get that. 
Um, and this article resonated with me in particular because I used to work in online advertising. I used to work for a uh, trade publishing company. There were five uh, magazines, print magazines, and I was in charge of the online presence for those print magazines. Um, and so we sold lots of ads against our website, lots of ads against our newsletters in particular. They looked like racing cars because the sales guys kept wanting to put more and more ads on there. And I, if I remember correctly, we didn't really sell per click, we sold per impression. And so the idea was you would want to, you know, have as big a circulation as possible so we could say this many people, you know, saw these ads, right? Um, and even with the somewhat dubiousness of even making that connection of we sent out the newsletter and this many people saw the ad, definitely saw it, um, even if you give that, like, as a granted, um, that that impression, that that seeing the ad demonstrably contributed to... Um, the buying of a product, right? And that had they not seen that ad, the chances of them not buying that product go down by this much, and then you can kind of calculate that into um, actual sales for your product and then say, okay, it was worth this much money to have this ad on your website. Because at the end of the day, that's the thing, right? We want to know how to value these ads. What is the actual value of these things? Are you paying the right amount? Because that's how you get a bubble is when you're paying far more than they're worth, right? Um, and the things we just don't know. But I always kind of suspected that there was just some faulty, not even faulty science, just no science. There was no data. And I kept waiting for like the bubble to burst. I kept waiting for the advertisers to start saying, hey, we're not going to sell ads until you can start showing us that this is you know, moving the needle. I worked there for four years. It never happened. This is back in like 2006 to 2010 or so. Um, and it's never burst since, right? It's only gotten bigger and bigger. Um, and on the one hand, I'm like, wow. I mean, really, if you think about it, this has been going on as long as there's been advertising, right? Like, we've never had real data. So it should be no surprise. But on the other hand, I'm like, yeah, people thought the housing market was going to last forever, too. So I don't know. Um, so... There's some great quotes from this article. So Rao has this great quote. He says, beliefs formed on insufficient evidence are tough to move. Like that, right, is the core of confirmation bias, right? And you can see it play out in the behavior of uh, marketers and advertisers after the eBay kind of scandal came out and you saw this huge loss. What did people do? Well, um, uh, Rao would think he was working at Bing at the time and like was able to look and see wh whether or not the needle moved and basically brand keyword advertising declined by 10%. That was the impact of seeing this hundreds of millions of dollars lost was we're going to pull it back by 10%. Um, so I think you can see a lot of confirmation bias in here. I think you can see a lot of sunk cost fallacy too. I mean, this is a, a dream that people have invested ludicrous amounts of money in. Online advertising now dwarfs pretty much any other media market. Um, and there's a degree to which you don't want to know the truth, right? Um, there's another great quote from Steve uh, Tadellis, the economist we were talking about before. He was saying, like, if this is about religion, I can't help you. I have nothing against religion. I just don't think it has a place in marketing analytics, right? Like, that is really, once you get into true confirmation bias, you're really just talking about religion. You're talking about belief, not about facts, not about rationality, not about that. You're talking about, I just believe in ads, so I'm going to spend a lot of money on them. I just believe in ads, so I'm going to make sure that I create this marketplace for them. Um, and... Another kind of, it's not a bias exactly, it's just sort of like a, a pitfall. It's called the moral hazard of gameplay. I think we've talked about it before, and it's when your incentivization doesn't match what you actually want to happen. Um, and 
if you think about it, like everyone's in this game is incentivized to not want to know the truth. So if you have like a marketing department, right, and you're um, you're online, right, and you're in charge of the marketing budgets, um, everybody's fighting for a piece of the pie, right? So you have the TV marketing department, you have the you know um, uh, print ads, you have radio, maybe you have um, online, right? And online wants to show that they're moving the needle. So any data they can point to that says, yep, we sold this many ads and look how much money we made. No one's going to want to hear the word selection effect, <laughs> especially if it means, oh no, you actually cost us money, right? So it's in no one's best interest, except maybe like the other marketing departments, <laughs> um, to, uh, to, to say that the emperor has no clothes or more accurately, we can't really be sure if the emperor has clothes or not because we don't have the data. Um, so that that plays into it as well. That's another strong bias playing into this. Um, so another great quote um, uh, from the article, all of that is bad scientific practice, but it, it's actually great job preservation practice, right? So you can see, right, that's like the moral hazard of gameplay in a nutshell, right? It's I'm not doing this because I'm trying to get to the truth. I'm doing this because this is the only way I can keep my job. I think a lot of uh, corporate America, right, runs on how do I keep my job, not how do we actually get to the right answer. Um, and there's a little bit of, of overconfidence effect too, right? So part of this is we really want certainty. Like that's been the theme. Like if you take one thing away from this, all 100 and I guess two now episodes of the podcast, um, we love certainty, and we love it so much, we will throw logic under the bus, we will throw other people under the bus. Uh, but the cost, right, is sometimes rationality. The cost is sometimes bubbles. Um, and uh, the complexity of having to deal with things like selection effects and think things through, um, it's very easy and seductive to just not do that because it's so much easier to say, hey, look, we put out the ad and then, oh, we got all this money, it must be working. Um, so... One more quote I want to, I want to put in here is from uh, Steve Dedels. There is a fear that saying I don't know amounts to an admission of incompetence, but ignorance is not incompetence. Curiosity is not incompetence, right? And I feel like that, I feel like there's a certain, like, you know, masculine style of corporate behavior, right? That's very much about, you know, never asking directions, you know, to, to use that old trope. But it's like, you project confidence and you're kind of trained from you to do this, but you project confidence and data gives you a way to do that, right? Without actually knowing what you're talking about. There's even a great moment in the article where um, one of the economists kind of calls out the ad team because they try to out jargon him, <laughs> but they're just, they're projecting this confidence that's not really there. And then as you get more data, your confidence goes up, even if it shouldn't, uh, even though the accuracy isn't actually improving. Um, and so this is sort of like, vicious cycle of um, false confidence, like it, it's as much a confidence bubble as an economic bubble. So I feel like that comes into play as well. Um, so I don't know, I just really wanted to, I really reacted to the store and I thought, okay, this actually would make a fantastic episode because it does show this, you know, confederacy of biases kind of working together to create this really serious problem that, again, even if it were true, like even if they were actually had accurate data to say, you know, conclusively, yes, because these ads are actually moving the needle, um, it would be at the cost of our privacy, right? And at the cost of this. So if I read this and I find out, you know what, it's not even a good model, right? It's not even actually working well, right? Or it's only working well because we believe it works well, because everyone's just agreeing that it works well. Well, that's even worse, 
right? Um, if it's not even actually getting anything done, like uh, it's really just a waste. It was already a bad idea. Now it's a bad idea without a goal. Um, so I don't know. That, I just really felt compelled to kind of share that story. Um, so we are we have one episode left. Um, it's going to be a very special episode. I'm going to have a very special surprise guest. Um, uh, and then we're going to close it out. Um, but like I said, uh, like this is not the end of bias. Um, <laughs> I'm working on a book about this stuff and I'll give you, you know, more details about this as, as, as we kind of go along. There'll probably be like a handful of, you know, you may see these feed pop up again with little things as we get closer to the launch. Uh, but for the like formal, like Canon, uh, cognitive bias podcast episodes where this is the next to last one. Uh, so for that, uh, for the cognitive bias podcast, uh, I'm your host, David Dylan Thomas, and we will see you one more time. 